Hey, thank you so much for joining with us wherever you are and whomever you are with. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather in this way. You know, as we are in the stretch run of our community group season, I just want to challenge a notion, uh, you know, because I had some conversations with people in the church that said, hey, we love what Life Church is doing. This sounds great. It's really scriptural. Uh, but we're going to come back when you all return to normal in-person gatherings. And I just want to again challenge that notion as we conclude or begin to conclude our community group season. We have several weeks left for people to get on board. If you want to come to the community group here at the church building or if you need help finding a home that you'd like to be a part of, uh, go to the church website. We'd love to connect you with that. But the notion that we are not meeting in person is completely false. Yes, of course, when we gather with two or three hundred of us together in one place, in one church building, we are meeting in person. But so, too, are we meeting in person when we gather in homes. And I would add and suggest that we aren't just meeting in person as normal, but there's a greater opportunity for the presence of God as we make ourselves available on these smaller, more intimate and indeed scriptural scales. I read a passage when we were meeting together and celebrating communion that I want to share with you, the church, in the context of community group season, in particular, communion itself. It's from Houses That Changed the World by Wolfgang Simpson. He writes this, When Jesus taught people, it usually involved meeting them in their homes, eating and drinking whatever they offered. Typically, the teaching of Jesus was right at the table over a meal, not just after a meal surrounded by children and visitors, not in an artificial seminary setup, but in a real life situation. The Lord's Supper was a substantial supper with a symbolic meaning, not a symbolic supper with a substantial meaning. This is one of the reasons we've leaned into our community group season as an offering to the church. This is why it was so incredible that Jesus offered a meal to Zacchaeus. Uh, he didn't just have a meal with Zacchaeus. He had a meal at Simon, uh, the Pharisee's house. He had a meal with this one, a meal with that one. Uh, Jesus was called a drunkard because he was eating so many meals. He was gathering with people in person in these smaller scales. Yes, we have an accepted tradition of church gatherings where uh, hundreds of people worship together. And those are wonderful. But so too are these in-person intimate meetings where we get to make ourselves available to the presence of God in a greater scale than we normally are used to. So if you're looking for a community group, we'd love to plant you in one. Again, there's one being offered at the church building as well. Uh, so we'd love to, for everyone to get on board in these final weeks of our community group season. All right. Right now, I'd love to invite you as a community group or if you're with just a couple of friends or by yourself to stop for a moment and read aloud our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All right, the passage of the scripture, the portion of 1 Corinthians 13 that we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 13, 5b. Now, something about notations of scripture, you're not going to find an A, B, C, or D. But as we work through a larger passage, we want to dive into and take time to digest the smaller bits. And so we create this notation A, B, C, or D associated with scriptures. And in fact, just as a reminder, when Jesus spoke, when the apostle Paul wrote these words, he didn't notate them in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2. These are all machinations that we've added so we can help decipher, move through, read ourselves, or even refer back to scriptures. So the smaller portion that we are taking time to look at today, 1 Corinthians 13, 5b, 
it does not insist on its own way. It, of course, is referencing love. Let me pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to gather together to read the entirety of this familiar passage, this influential passage, the love chapter. And so we ask as we share these moments of conversation and ministry together that we would be further molded, shaped, and made more into the image of Christ. We love you, we honor you, and make ourselves available to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes it takes space. It takes um, time. It takes some even prayer meditation, all interwoven with a word study of the scriptures to decipher and determine biblical truth and application. Sometimes it takes none of those things. (laughs) And this time, this portion is one of those times. It, It takes none of that. It, love, does not insist on its own way. I'm going to begin today by pulling what some would equate to uh, a fire alarm with shrill warnings and warring lights that scream, danger, danger, danger. He said that, so let's all run to safety. I want to mention this because some, not all, but some will immediately feel unsafe. When I make a statement here in a few moments, you may feel unsafe. And I want to honor that sense and acknowledge that that is what you feel. You may feel unsafe safe. But I want to be forthright in suggesting you may not really be concerned about the sanctity of something. You're feeling the wobble, the wobble in how you felt right before I spoke and afterward not as much. Like when a leg of a chair gets broken or something gets pulled out from under and you fall to the ground. I would like to point out that this sensation, this wobble is not wrong. In fact, it's productive. And might I challenge us, even inescapable for a life that's founded on faith, for a life that's following Jesus. Oh, see, I thought it was like this, but now I've come to discover it's like that. What I understood as a child, I understood it like this. But now that I'm older, in my 20s, 30s, 40s, I I understand it like this. Or now that I'm 60, these things don't matter as much as when I thought they mattered when I was 15. Or like in John chapter 9, I was blind but now I see. It's the very same vertigo experienced by Nicodemus in his night-covered conversation with Jesus in John chapter 3. It's just like Peter after all of the conversations he has with Jesus as Jesus offers revelation of a different way. It's just like when you learn to ride a bike, that little bit of wobble as you are finding your way from training wheels to something alternative. It's just like when you were beginning to toddle. Maybe you don't remember that, but I'm sure there's some grainy video of that somewhere. It's just like Paul being knocked to the ground, blind, and being introduced to a whole new way of seeing. It's just like those first few years of marriage, or, or maybe you're like my wife and I, and here we are about to celebrate 18 years of marriage, 19 years of marriage, 20 years of marriage, all these things right around the corner. And yet we are very much in a formative season in our marriage, in the Fehrenbach marriage, as we are working out these different seasons. Think of any time when you were confident you understood it, whatever it is. And then clarity came like a, like a rushing wave knocking you to the ground. I could go on, but I I think I've made my point. We must be careful to not equate wobbling sensations with 
sanctity, salvation, or something even alternative to the spirit, but rather the very natural sensation or feeling of un. Yeah, we can equate that to unsafe, but it might be an unpacking of truth. It might be a new understanding. So, I've built it up long enough, but are you ready for this statement? There are other ways to love. The title of our conversation today is The Other Ways of Love. I think we can all safely accept the notion that Jesus himself gives many course corrections. He offers incredibly alternative ways to thinking, to interacting, to, to dreaming, to praying, to living, to believing. Ways that are bigger, broader, and beyond people's understandings before. And if you have a relationship with Jesus that's vibrant in any way, shape, or form, you have had those experiences yourself. Your own experiences, oh man, there's bigger and broader. Or you've encountered other people and tried to encourage them, hey, there are bigger and broader than what we first previously imagined. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We just did that as a church. We walked through that entire uh, section of Scripture. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, how to be human. The whole notion of that is built upon the phrase that Jesus uses continuously. You've heard it said, but now I say. You've heard it said, but now I say. And again, Jesus is not deconstructing the truth. He's saying, hey, I'm not doing away with that. I'm bringing it to clarity. We see this as well as Jesus encounters the woman who's caught in the midst of adultery in John chapter 8, a bigger and broader way. We see it as Jesus encounters Lazarus as he calls him out from the tomb who once was dead, but he says, come out in John chapter 11. We hear it in the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 where he says, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Understand the wave sometimes comes crashing, but we have to develop an expectation that maybe the wave is actually trying to come crashing from within as we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. I think we'd be aided today by honestly considering when we were wrong before. Remember when we thought the, fl- the earth was flat? Remember when we thought slavery was an okay thing? Remember when we thought establishing reservations for uh, aboriginal tribes was a good thing? Remember when we thought that women were a lesser creation? And maybe you never said that, but remember when we thought that women shouldn't preach, women shouldn't lead, women shouldn't teach? Remember when we thought that internment camps, taking groups of people who were alternative us than us in society or racial incrimination should be placed together? Remember when we thought the earth was the center of the universe? Remember when we thought that interracial marriage was evil? Remember when, remember when, remember when. We humans have a long shared history of not getting it right all the time. (laughs) Think about you, your own personal life, your own misses. Now, if you're at a loss for when you were quote unquote wrong the last time, ask your spouse. (laughs) I'm sure they'd love to remind you of a time or season or a few instances. Ask a, a close friend, ask your parent. If you find that no one can recall a time 
Pause after you ask that question and they say, I don't remember. Pause. Smile while you look down with the deferring, submissive posture. Then look up at them with warmth. Give it a second. Stare into their eyes and then apologize. Apologize for not being teachable. Apologize for burning bridges of relationship where they, whereby they could speak into your life. Then take a breath and ask them again, when was the last time I was wrong? I'm mindful when Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he does so in the context, not of equations, formats, and black and white, this is always this and that is always that, but he does it in the context of hearing my voice. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he describes this relationship that the sheep know the shepherd's voice. He is the shepherd. And so he's not suggesting there's this and there's that, but he's saying, my voice, I am going to speak with you. I want you to listen to me. I'm mindful of words that Jesus speaks in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he talks about there being a narrow way. And, and what we've so done to that passage is that a narrow way is a very thin right way. And it's amazing when people will quote that passage or that scripture, how often they themselves are in always that thin right way. My reading of that, and one day this revelation that the Spirit of God just dropped on me in conversations with others, that the narrow way is not just one thin right way, which incredibly always includes what we think. But if you try and work yourself into a narrow way, you actually have to turn, you have to manipulate, you have to kind of suck in to get through. This is perhaps maybe, just maybe what Jesus is offering us in terms of the narrow way, that it's not we've got it, but we have to allow ourselves to be receiving an, of an invitation to change, mold, and shape ourselves. And Paul speaks to it like this in Romans chapter 12. Listen to this passage of scripture and how it is not about anything out there, but rather, how are we receiving an invitation? How are we molding, shaping, and changing, being teachable, uh, converting? How are we transforming? He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Man, if someone's persecuting, that's an opportunity for us to bless them, to do good, to serve. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable, <clears throat> excuse me, in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Not on them, but as much as you can. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, argue with them. <laughs> Tell them they're wrong. No, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For 
by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's make it a little bit more personal. If you're married today, or if you ever want to be married, uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, Peter writes, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, the clothing you wear. As an aside, this is not a passage of scripture suggesting you can't braid your hair, you can't wear something beautiful or adorn yourself with earrings or whatever else. It's suggesting don't let that be the substance of your beauty, but let your beauty be alternative other things as well. Verse four, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands. That little word there means similarly or just in the same way. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, not because they are, but as showing favor, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That's a lot of invitation for us to mold, shape, change. So let's do some simple math as we move to our times of conversation and ministry. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now let's add to that Jesus, who is God and therefore love, as we've spoken about before, we observe not being insistent on his own way. Jesus invites, but Jesus does not insist. So love invites, and love does not insist. I've had many interactions with people, myself very much included. Well, I'm saying this, or I'm acting like this, or, or I'm shutting them out, or I'm making this stand. These are all common, common prologues I hear which proceed, well, because I love them. I have to tell them this because I love them. I'm acting like this towards them because I love them. I'm shutting them out and removing them from fellowship and relationship because I love them. I'm making a stand in this way because I love them. Maybe loving insistence doesn't work because insisting isn't loving. Maybe we're not seeing godly fruit because we're living and acting in ungodly ways. And I will grant you that we have good intentions. We want fruit in people's lives. We, we want them to walk away from sin. We want them to be as God has intended for them to be. But just because we have good intentions does not mean that our ungodly interactions with them will lead to godly fruit. Maybe, just maybe, we somehow moved unwittingly from spirit to self without even realizing it. Maybe, just maybe, the pullback you feel from one you're insisting upon is actually there responding to the spirit of the living God, to the presence of Christ. 
more than a rejecting a gospel offering or some other heading of persecution that you add to a, a layer of communication. Maybe, just maybe, they are responding to the fact that you are insisting and love does not insist. They may be, they are just responding to the spirit of Christ. Consider God's interactions. <laughs> he does not insist for Noah to build an ark. He invites Noah to build an ark. Consider all of the interactions that God has with Abram and Abraham. He invites him to interactions. He invites him to go to Mount Moriah with his child Isaac. He invites him to leave his family. He does not insist. He invites. Watch and read the life of Moses. The greatest liberator the world has ever seen. How often he even argues and has conversations with God. But God is long-suffering because love is long-suffering and he's patient and he's kind. All the while, God does not insist to Moses, but he invites. Think about Joshua and the victory at Jericho or any other amazing circumstance with the nation of Israel walking into the promised land. All of these things, they are built on invitations, not insisting Consider Jesus as he allows the rich young ruler to walk away because Jesus does not insist, he invites. Consist, consider Jesus suggesting to Peter, hey, why don't you throw that net onto the other side of the boat? He doesn't grab the net and shove it over there. He doesn't push him on the other side of the boat. He doesn't yell at him. He says, hey, why don't you try the other side of the boat? He invites. Consider the, the daughter who's dead. He doesn't grab her, wake up! He just says, Talitha Kumi, wake up. Or as Lazarus is in the tomb, roll away the stone. He doesn't insist, he doesn't yell, he doesn't point, because love doesn't insist on its own way. He says, hey, roll away the stone. Lazarus, come out. When you start to recognize this lack of insistence, you start to hear the word let a whole lot more in the Gospels. Let your heart not be troubled. <laughs> Believe also in me, Jesus says. John chapter 14, 15, and 16. I invite you to read that passage of scripture over the next week and just see how many times you get this notion of let, let, let. The invitation of Jesus to follow me. How Jesus always ate with everybody. How Jesus always included everybody. Yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Isaiah 55 is right as well, that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So the first consideration is, how does this affect your personal relationship with God? Am I expecting God to insist on his way? Am I expecting God to wrench me from my moment? Am I expecting God to insist on his own way and therefore unconsciously ignoring all the gracious invitations I am being given? Maybe this should affect how you interact with other people. Are you insisting? I don't believe that people wake up every morning. Maybe there are a few of us, but I don't believe people wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm just going to insist. I'm going to insist all day long. Am I insisting? Take account of your posture. Are you sitting on your back leg and, and, and getting ready to push 
Uh, are you closed-fisted or are you welcoming? Are you serving somebody open-handed toward others' lives? Consider the responses of other people. Do they recoil from you or are they receptive to you? Survey your surroundings, those friends and relationships that are in your world. Are they less unlike me or more unlike me around me? Ask yourself, do I value truth? Do I value a thing to bring joy and fullness or do I value a table full of people journeying together? Love does not insist on its own way. Let me leave you with this benediction. May we not live insecurely, sparsely, or within man-made limitations in regards to the love of God. May we cease assuming God is one of insistence and instead hear every fresh invitation mercy and grace offers us daily. May we season our love to others with invitation. May we trust there are indeed other ways to love. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better.